who wants to be told that the egghead Brian Biggs <laughs> has some magic model that can tell me where value is when I'm out there every day pounding the pavement, speaking to market participants, and getting that information myself. You are listening to the AFIRE podcast. Real estate, technology, cross-border investing, and the opportunities of a changing world. Let's start a conversation now. So whenever we talk about data science in real estate, it, it sounds like we're throwing around a phrase that we think we understand, but maybe we don't. I, I suspect that whenever the industry knows about it right now is pretty shallow, too shallow, really, to see exactly how much we can use it and, and how much eventually it's going to transform what we do as investors in commercial real estate. So Brian Biggs, who's the VP of research over at Grosvenor, uh, wrote an excellent piece for our most recent uh, AFIRE Summit. Uh, we're talking to you right now, October 21st, 2022, uh, where he gave some really kind of, I think, some interesting insight on how data science works and how it is applied to real estate. So I'm really glad to be able to talk with him here today on the podcast. Uh, so thank you, Brian, for joining me on the AFIRE podcast. Well, thank you, Gunnar, for the opportunity. Well, why don't we just start? You you, you said so, you had a phrase that I really liked, and I and I, I want to remember this: that you said that real estate is an is an informationally inefficient asset class. Um, and I, I'd love for you to explain what that is: the, this idea of of informationally inefficiency, um, and and how is it a problem for us in real estate? Yeah, so maybe it's easier to start with talking about what does informational efficiency mean. So informational efficiency is this concept that prices, uh, this is a general economic concept, that prices reflect all of the information that is available to market participants. And in the in sort of specific application to asset markets, it would say that, say, stock prices reflect all the information available about the macro economy, about the company in question, about that company's competitors, about uh, state of the market, et cetera, an informationally inefficient asset class. So, so we call stocks an informationally efficient asset class, the bonds as well. Generally speaking, publicly traded uh, securities, currencies, things like that are considered to be you know, broadly informationally efficient. I'm sure there are some inefficiencies there as well, but those are what we consider to be the closest you know, real world uh, example of what we have is informationally efficient asset classes. Informationally inefficient asset classes, by contrast, are asset classes in which it takes a long time to get information that's available incorporated into the price. And that can be for a number of different reasons. It can be that information, generally speaking, is available, but it's difficult to access. Real estate, for instance, it's difficult for me to know with any degree of certainty what the rents are paid at each floor and each suite within my office building, unless, unless I own it, unless I have access to the rent roll. There are services that sell me that information, but it's hard to know if that is 100% clear to be true. It, it may be that um, you know I, I don't have full transparency over the market. Other reasons why uh, asset classes may be informationally inefficient is they're illiquid. 
stocks, of course, I can go and buy shares, you know, one share at a time, I can even buy fractions of shares. For real estate, I can, there are some platforms that allow me to sort of crowd invest in real estate and things like that. But for traditional institutional real estate investors, I'm having to stump up the full price. It's a mix of debt and equity, oftentimes in the tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars all at once. That means that the bidder pool is relatively thin in real estate markets compared to something like equities. And so there are fewer participants. And so that makes it more likely that information that's available isn't being incorporated into the price. So when we say that real estate is an informationally inefficient asset class, it just means we don't think that the price necessarily reflects all the information available to market participants at any given point in time. And, and that, to a certain extent, is one of the advantages to investing in, in real estate if you're able to get more information than the other guy. You know, this idea of, of finding the value um, through the process of due diligence and, and the idea that whoever has the most information wins, right? Yeah, that, that, that's absolutely right. So there are two components, you want to call it, of, of realized return. One is called beta, beta. Um, that's referred to as the market return. It's just you know, when the market goes up, how much does your asset go up? That, that measure is, is your beta. And that's driven primarily by your relationship to the market. The other component is called alpha, and it's that excess component that you would get, or sometimes, you know, kind of not excess or that underperformance versus your historic relationship with the market. What we think at Grovner, and I think this is probably true if you ask a lot of real estate researchers in general, is that informationally inefficient asset classes offer more scope for, and I'll be positive in this case, outperformance. Uh, again, in stocks, um, this isn't this isn't uh, the, the position of everyone, but I would argue that more people think that it is more difficult to generate alpha in stocks because why are you smarter than the entire market? Because we consider stocks to be informationally efficient, that means that market participants are in real time incorporating information into the price of stocks. And so what do you know that someone else doesn't know that's going to allow you to outperform the market? Now, of course, we do have absolute return funds and things like that in stocks. So there are still people out there uh, trying to generate alpha in stocks. But I would argue it is much more difficult than something like real estate, where because it's informationally inefficient, if I do the work to go out and try to source information on uh, real estate, analyze that information, analyze that information in a different way that provides me some insight, as to whether, say, an asset is above or below its fair value, right? The, the marketed price of an asset is above or below its fair value. I might be able to generate some outsized return versus what the market is expecting. Fair enough. Well, how if you could compare? Okay, so if we were to take a data science approach, and everyone's talking about how with data science we're going to learn stuff that we can't see, we're going to unlock value that isn't there. But can you compare what we do now? with what uh, a data science-enabled real estate investor might do instead? Yeah, well, one of the arguments that we make, and this is something that we, that we kind of say internally as well, but one of the arguments that we make in the article is that actually data science is an extension of what we already do traditionally in the real estate acquisitions process. So in the real estate acquisitions process, we try to uh, collect data on as many close to, but not exactly the same comparators 
in real estate. So it could be you know similar office assets, similar residential assets. And by similar, we mean maybe they're geographically close. Maybe the build type is relatively similar. Maybe we think that the amenities that are on offer within the building are similar, et cetera. We try to collect as many close enough assets as possible, observe their price in the market or their recently traded price or the rents that they are asking for today or commanding today, make these sort of micro adjustments. So we say that, let's say, if we're going to buy an apartment building, we have a pool and we have a building that is very similar to ours, but they don't have a pool. Maybe we get a premium. And so we mark up uh, the price we would pay or we mark up the achievable per square foot rents by 5%. Why 5%? Well, maybe we have some other evidence from you know these uh, one-off small end comparisons uh, here or there, or maybe it's just a wet finger in the air. Maybe there's no basis for it whatsoever. Once we collect the number of comparators, make those micro adjustments or those kind of feature by feature adjustments, we come up with some range of what we think a realistic price of the subject asset or the acquisition target um, might be. In data science, we're doing the exact same thing as that with a couple of quirks. We're extending the sample size. So instead of collecting, say, five, six, 12 comparator assets, we're going to try to collect hundreds, even thousands if possible. Instead of doing line-by-line -line adjustments on key features, we're going to collect a series of, of harmonized variables, so the same information across every single asset. And we're going to use statistical methods to understand what is the relationship between all of those characteristics and the value or the price that commands in the market. What we're going to get as a result is we're going to get some statistical confidence intervals. So again, we're using statistics here to try to tell us what is the underlying relationship between what we think of as the value drivers of real estate and those end values. We get some estimate because it's, it, this information is, um, is in sometimes measured with error. The statistical method is estimated with error. So we have some range that we think is reasonably caught with a 95% confidence that, that the kind of spot estimate is correct, right? So in the same way that we get with comparator analysis, some range of you know, maybe the rent would be anywhere between two and $2.50 a square foot, we also get that some range around what we think the end price would be based on the ranges that we get for the estimates of how much those value drivers add to the value. Um, but it's different. It's driven by statistics as opposed to being driven by um, these kind of uh, micro one-off adjustments. And we can't we can't possibly uh, uh, emphasize enough the difference between uh, checking out five examples and checking out five thousand examples in terms of what that does to your understanding of the data that you have. Correct. Well, precisely. And there are you know pluses and minuses to both. The way that I talk about data science in real estate, when, when I'm talking to uh, people in our investments team or development team, our structure development finance team internally, is that this is not replacing the traditional real estate skill set. I think it's essential that we, that we sell this as it were, this capability within real estate, right? This is sort of the research function in real estate actually trying to, to push this, not just at Grovner, but I think in the entire industry, it's important that we do not say that this is replacing what is done today or it's replacing the traditional skill set. It's just another tool in the tool belt because it's, it is similar to, but different enough from 
what's being done today, that it just gives a different perspective, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's difficult to collect all the information necessary to do some of those micro adjustments. We may not be able to know what sort of range is in the kitchen. We may not be able to know what sort of countertops are in the kitchen. We may not be able to measure with any degree of, of, of sort of um, robustness that we can put into a statistical model, what kind of view that an apartment gets. There are methods to do that, but it may be difficult to get the information that we think actually drives the value. And so, but we can of course do some spot adjustments on a, as you said, N equals five basis that can get us to that. And then we get a result from doing those adjustments where it's hard to collect data for 5,000, but we can collect data for five and make those adjustments. Equally though, it's hard to know if that five is actually representative or if we've just sort of picked them because it's convenient for whatever reason the data is available or everyone talks about these as being comparative properties, but there's really no reason why other than some, some herd mentality or some group thinking, when you extend that to 5,000, you start to get some sense of, you know, really, is there a clear relationship here between what we think are the value drivers? And crucially, what is the price of that relationship, right? Mm -hmm. But what we can't do is say something about some of those micro features and units that we have difficult time uh, collecting data on. So it's just, it's different ways of trying to analyze the same phenomenon. Okay. But the difference is, or at least in my opinion, the difference is what large end studies can do is it can highlight, um, it, it can surprise you, I think, a bit more. Yeah. Because when you're looking at a small number of properties, you probably know this market very well. I mean, any real estate analyst worth their salt is probably going to know intimately well the uh, small end number of comparators or the properties of interest in their market and may have preconceived notions, may have their own biases that they're bringing to the table about the value drivers in that small end number of properties. What statistical analysis does is abstracts away from those biases. They can still be there. These are still models constructed by humans. And that's a really key point to emphasize. This is not some sort of uh, cold, abstract scientific process, especially with real estate data, which is um, not particularly clean, right? Mm -hmm. It's still, there's no single source of truth in real estate. There's, you know, as much art as there is science in this, but it does just by using the statistical methods, we are able to, um, I suppose, a little bit dilute the impact of, of some of our biases or so-called let the data speak so long as we've constructed models in the right way. Well, let, let's let's make this a little bit more tangible. Uh, in your article, I thought you did a really nice job by looking at a particular market, Seattle. Um, what are you able to learn um, through this this method of collecting data around real estate values? In, in the AFIRE article, what we did is we just wanted to provide a a simple illustrative example. And so what we do is we took per square foot rents in the greater Seattle market and we matched it up against weighted average commute time. And this data is from the US census. What we did is we went in and we basically took a number of respondents that said that they uh, drove, you know, or, or, or commuted rather a certain number of minutes per day and then did it a weighted average of that. And we did it at the census block level. Now, if you go on the website, you can actually see and highlight over some of the maps. Um, they are interactive, zoom in, zoom out. You can see you know, the commute time or the per square foot rents if you want to highlight over one of the shapes. But 
it's it's not rocket science to say that the further out you are from a job center or the longer your commute, the lower you're probably going to pay in rent. There, that, that seems pretty obvious, right? right? I suppose the difference is two things. Number one, how much less rent are you willing to pay? Or how much less rent do we observe tenants paying today based on their self-reported commute time? Or you could measure it other ways. You could measure, you could do drive times on a road network. Um, you know, how much less do we observe tenants paying today? And number two, what's the value of lower commute time versus other factors, the value of being in a good school district, the value of being near green space or in Seattle being near the water, the value of being near uh, a lot of hip coffee shops and restaurants, et cetera. So the example that we have there is, again, I don't think it's rocket science, but we're doing something in a way that we are trying to be more precise about what that transit premium is than we have been able to be historically. You're, you're literally putting a price to it, right? In terms of distance. Yeah, By it, looking at the data, you're able to get to a, an, an amount in terms of what every extra 10 minutes is, correct? That's absolutely right. So you can express the results in a number of different ways. Um, and I'll talk a little bit later about why it's important to express results in this way or in a tangible way. But we found for every 10 minutes additional self-reported commute, rents fell by about two cents. And, you know, there, there's, is that true or not? I think with our model, we, we, we explained about 68% of the variation cross-sectionally in Seattle apartment rents with this model. So it feels pretty good. We would like to get that up a little bit more. We're constantly trying to test and innovate and see if, if there's anything we can do to bring that up. But actually that feels pretty good for, you know, spatial models of real estate. That's, at least for us in the strike zone of believability. Um, so, and, and again, that's still measured with air. Is it two cents? Could be one cent, could be three cents, but you know, we land on that as a spot estimate. So what that means is if we're going in and we're buying an apartment asset today, and, and again, all else held equal, we observe that uh, you know, commuters are paying something like the equivalent of uh, a five cent rent premium based on that transit time. We may think that there's some underpricing there. We may think that uh, tenants in that market are undervaluing the transport options they have available to them today. And with some sharp asset management and the right marketing, maybe instead of a five cent discount on every 10 minutes, you can get that to a two cent discount. Well, that means the achievable rents in the market are you know, maybe three cents higher than they are today for every 10 mm -hmm. minutes additional commute, of course. So you have to scale that. But so maybe... You know, if it's a hundred minutes commute, it's, it's something like 30 cents higher rent, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's where you get, if, if you can price these features efficiently, that's where you start to spot opportunities to say, you know what, I think this is fundamentally what the transit premium or discount, however you want to express it is. And I think today the market is either under or overvaluing that transit premium. Well, that's an interesting way to look for alpha, to be looking at those factors that, that determine how much people are willing to pay and to realize that there's still a very large market out there that is is behaving, as you put it, a wet finger in the air to figure out what the price is. And there is a lot of that still in our business. Um, and some of that's very accurate. I mean, a lot of people have a lot of experience and and have a gut feel for where things should be in particular neighborhoods. But it does seem to me that this provides us with an avenue 
to a new alpha. I think so. And, and it's so, but why now is the question, right? So if, if this seems so obviously the right way to go about achieving alpha, why haven't we been doing it since, you know, time immemorial, since the start of real estate investing? We are starting to see an explosion of available geospatial data, as well as more high quality asset level data in real estate markets, such that we can combine them not for the first time necessarily, the work in this space has been going on for quite some time, but we're getting enough critical mass that we're able to build models that we are starting to think are investable. And again, by investable, I do not mean that computer says no, computer says yes, and you're investing capital simply on the basis of this model. But we think these models are making enough sense that we can stack them up against everything else we do in underwriting to give us a sense of where fair value is. But it, it does seem to me that th this is not something that um, is easy to incorporate into um, uh, an investor's process, into um, their shop, if you will. What What's standing in the way uh, for firms to, to, to use this? And are there ways that they need to be thinking about uh, data science and how to incorporate it that will help them uh, gain, gain a foothold in this. Yeah, I, th I think there are several practical difficulties, roadblocks that data scientists, data scientists working in real estate need to overcome to be able to, uh, to, to have real impact on investment committees and investment processes. One is just a mindset thing. I, I do think that um, there is a natural and healthy degree of distrust around model-based estimates because who wants to trust the black box? Mm -hmm. I, I totally understand that. And at the same time, I, I think uh, who wants to be told that, and, and I'll say this about myself, so it's not to be too derogatory, the egghead Brian Biggs <laughs> has some <laughs> magic model that can tell me where value is when I'm out there every day pounding the pavement, speaking to market participants, and getting that information myself totally understand that. That's why it's so important to do two things. Number one, make it clear that this is just another tool in the tool belt, another tool to make your life that bit easier, another perspective on the market. The second thing is it's important to express the model results in layman's terms. If I were to tell you that, you know, the beta coefficient on transit is, you know, to to the minus you know kind of minus four power some some crazy thing like that but just to express my model results in the technical language in which I get it when I run it in our statistics program that is not helpful mm -hmm. and that is not going to get a good sell on investment committees what I need to do then my job is not just to collect process clean model this data it's also to figure out how can I then take these these results and turn them into insights mm. and tell them to my internal clients and my stakeholders how how does this actually drive value in your business so there's a communications piece that needs to be mastered here that i think we're still kind of in a journey on yeah and, well. and it do, does seem like there's a wide range of adoption that's going on from firms that are maybe in the in the lead uh, and that have folks that are able to turn it into insights to others that are still trying to get their hands around what this means and how to do it but as the industry becomes more conversant with the new geospatial data and is actually using it as part of their investment process 
do you see this perhaps changing um, the gaps, making it harder? Uh, actually, for people to find alpha in this industry as we become a little bit more efficient. Oh, absolutely. So I see this as being for groups that are really investing in this. And, and by investing, I don't mean just putting money behind it, although there's a money component that makes it difficult as well. I mean, human resources. I mean, the mindset shift that is required internally to make good use of this. I think right now for the groups that are moving in that direction, this is a competitive advantage, but I also think this is the direction of travel of research in general. And I think, is it five years? Is it 10 years? Who knows? But quite soon, this will become the minimum standard of research within the real estate investing space, such that um, alpha will come from the quality of your models, not the use of models. And alpha will come from your ability to go and source new data in innovative ways, not just use existing data in innovative ways. So absolutely, I think for, for me at least, this is clearly the future of real estate research. It will be adopted um, pretty widely over the next five or 10 years. And the alpha that this generates today is going to be much harder to come by. Well, I mean, it, it seems like you're almost saying that this this is a train that's already kind of moving down the tracks. And uh, if you don't get on it, you're going to be certainly left behind. I think that's the risk. Um, that's not to say, again, I do think the traditional real estate skill set is still incredibly valuable. I always say your first instinct should be to think that our model is wrong. Yeah. If we uncover something, something that's surprising or something, some what we think of as fundamental mispricing, we should assume that that is actually part of that, uh, you know, 32% of the variation in apartment rents that we aren't able to explain, mm -hmm. or that there's something that either is absolutely obvious that we've missed, definitely possible, or that is there in the market. We have reasons to believe that the pricing is accurate, but we just can't incorporate that into our model for whatever reason. It's not measurable or it's not easily measurable etc. So I think it's it's not that soon, you know, you either get on board with this or you'll be left in the dust, but I think you start to fight more of an uphill battle, right? Because all of your competitors have something else that you don't have. It's not to say that they now have the magic money tree. Right. Um but again, it's, it's just that extra tool in the toolkit and it will become that much harder to compete. So I guess the magic money tree actually does not exist. Is, is what you're saying, that, that we can't just get our black boxes to tell us how to beat the competition and how to find the unrealized value, that we have to we have to continue to work as investors and be judicious and question everything. You know, I mean, they say real estate is a local business. And while I do believe that you can analyze and make money in real estate markets from a distance, there is still that value of being boots on the ground of being physically in the built environment in which you're investing. So I would say, yes, there's no magic money tree. If there was, you'd find me sitting under it. Um, but this is, this is still helpful. It is pushing the needle. And I, I do think on the margin for my money, at least, this is one of the best ways to achieve alpha at this point. Well, excellent. I do encourage uh, everyone who's listening to uh, maybe go on afire.org and look up uh, AFIRE Summit to see Brian's article in the uh, fall issue. 
of a fire summit, uh, really worth looking at. And if you look at it online, as, as Brian said, uh, you can work with the interactive maps and get a sense of, uh, of what he is finding at this point. So, uh, we've been talking with Brian Biggs. He's the VP of research at Grosvenor. Thank you so much for joining us on the A Fire podcast. Thank you, John. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the AFIRE podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast subscription service, such as Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitchers, and others. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice. No content in this podcast is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information included has been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable, though AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed are those of its respective contributors and sources and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE.